Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, Matt Walsh here with another big episode of the ESPN Footy Podcast. The bye week's now over, but there's plenty to discuss as always. To help me do that, Jake Michaels from his home in Elwood. Jake, how are you going? <laughs> I'm good. Uh, just looking at some notes here, uh, some footy notes. Yeah, it was good. Just five games. And I was just saying before to Rowan that... Um, it's when you go back to having the nine games, it feels like 20 all of a sudden. It's it's hard to get your head around how you're going to watch so many, but we will find a way. Well, they're spreading them out over over a few days again with Thursday night footy return. Uh, you mentioned Rowan. I'll, I'll introduce him next, Rowan Connolly. Uh, are you a little conflicted, Rowan? Because in the preseason, you said that Sydney were the dark horse to make finals and you've been proudly uh, reminding everyone that you did in, tip, in fact tip Sydney to make the finals. And perhaps they're the most likely to come out of the eight if your Bombers are to make the finals? Uh, That's a very good point, Matt. The head or the heart? No, look, I'm I'm a professional. I'm staying with the head. Uh, (laughs) Look, I think Sydney are good enough to stay in there. And I think uh, the Bombers have got a reasonable run home, but the next two weeks they've got Melbourne and Geelong and that might sort of finish them off. Either way, I'm happy with what they've... Finish them off or decide whether they make it? If they they split those games, would would you be confident they could make it? Possibly, but I think Sydney's good enough to hang on. But look, mm. here's, here's the consolation. I, whatever happens with Essendon, I think this season's been a big tick and you haven't been able mm. to say that too often in the last 20 years. So mm. I'm okay with it either way. Fair enough. And Christian Jolly from Champion Data. Uh, we've got some interesting stuff coming from you this week, uh, including things on score assists and goal assists. You've been uh, head down in some stats over the weekend for us. Uh, anything interesting coming of that later on? Yeah, hopefully. Um yeah, as you said, worked hard on it. So hopefully it's interesting, but um, we'll, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we do jump into another big episode, guys, something quirky from the weekend that grabbed your attention that we might otherwise miss. Christian, I might start with you. Yeah, so mine might be a little bit of a prelude to uh, what we're talking about um, further down in the pot about score involvements and score assists. But I actually noticed, uh, I noticed that early took Miller against Port Adelaide, um, I think early in the fourth or late in the third year, that he was on 25 disposals and I noticed he had zero score involvements. Um, so again, we'll give a definition of a better definition of a score involvement uh, shortly. But yeah, Jake actually emailed me on a Monday morning and said uh, Jared Lyons had, he noticed Jared Lyons had 36 disposals and zero score involvements and took Miller finished with 30 disposals and zero score involvements. So uh yeah, I noticed those two games and sort of dug into the numbers to find out where they rank all time, which, we, as I said, we'll uh, tease a little bit. We'll get to shortly. Very, very good. Uh, you'll have to keep on listening to find that out. Uh, Jake, something quirky from the weekend. Um, yeah, I uh, I thought Tom Stewart was tied with Jake Stringer for probably best performance of the round. Yeah. Um, and I was just interested to hear what he said after the game when he was being interviewed, Stewart, that is, and he was asked about how, you know, the performance and, you know, it was obviously a really tight game against the dogs, but he said that it was one of his better games and he sort of pumped himself up a little bit, which I really liked and thought it was quite rare to hear. It's um, we certainly don't get that in Australian sport. It's, it's pretty commonplace over in the U S but it's very rare that you hear a player sort of pump themselves up here. And I liked it. He, he deserved it. He played bloody well, 10 intercept marks. Yeah, well, you're right. We don't get that a lot here. I think the next step is for someone to maybe in the press conference on the Tuesday before their next game come out and say they're going to smash player X and, and yeah. take him to the cleaners. Uh, but we might be holding our breath for that, for that one to come to come around. Rowan, uh, something from the weekend that grabs your attention? Um, well, just continuing the Geelong theme, I think. Um, <laughs> there, there was a certain sort of inevitability, I thought, about them winning that game. And 
we know how, how great their home ground advantage is, but I thought it was time to actually go through and count them up. So since that line in the sand game when they uh, blew away Richmond in 2007 by 157 points, since then they have played 108 games at Cadinia Park or GMHBA Stadium as it's called now. They've won 97 of them. So it's, I think, 89.7%. And it just made me think there cannot be a better home ground record of any team in any sport in the world, surely. That is just a ridiculous stat. I mean, most sides the, uh, have beaten, most the sides have beaten their performance. Don't go pretty well over in Eden Park? Oh, I knew Jake had come yeah. up with something. <laughs> He'd have something, <laughs> yeah. Novak Djokovic, Jake, any, any stats on Djokovic on mate? Australian, yeah. <laughs> but you'd agree, it's pretty phenomenal. Oh, it's good, it? yeah, yeah. yeah. For a team sport, um, you know, you know, in a competition, I know that the All Blacks probably play the same five or six sides, you yeah. know, ad nauseum. But to, to be in an eighteen-team comp, I think the Cats—it's obviously pretty impressive what they do. Uh, I I had a something I noticed, and I said I was going to do this instead of something else, but I've forgotten what it is, and so I'm going to have to revert and join the Geelong theme. Yeah, uh, write your stuff down. <laughs> I need to write this down because I had a good one in the in the pre-pod meeting, but I'll stick with the Geelong theme given we're all going for it, and it was. Uh, Isaac Smith having to go and jump the fence and go and get his own footy. Oh, yeah. And you could just see the thrill it gave him when uh, when he had to sort of go about 10 rows back and, and find the yellow footy in amongst the stands. I don't reckon Isaac Smith has done that since under 14s. And the kick he got out of it and the kick the crowd got out of it and the kick that the crowd getting the kick out of it that gave him another kick. And I just thought it was a, a very quirky and I, I like a moment. little acknowledgement to the crowd that he gave as well. Yeah, oh. just the, the sheepish little, yep, radio. But then also, I guess that sort of, you know, broadens out a little bit into why were all the people in the same section in the same zone on both sides of the ground when in Victoria, the crowds are capped for a reason. And that reason is that they want a social distance because of the threat of the, the coronavirus. There the, was the only, the only thing I've heard that's uh, wrong on my um, a better point to this, but yeah, it's easier to clean, deep cleaning afterwards. So okay. that, again, it doesn't make sense that everyone's packed together, but it's then it's like, well, we don't have to clean the whole ground and all the venue. It's just quick. We know that it's been contained in this area. That's like still... saying it's easier to clean a hotel yeah. if we stuff everyone in there together in the quarantine. <laughs> no, my, my explanation's not going to satisfy you. I did see a health expert explain why it was the case, but I got about halfway through and my eyes started glazing <laughs> over. So... I gave well, up. I did some digging into what the MCG plans to do once crowds are allowed back there. And the response that I got uh, was, unsurprisingly, it's it's actually a money issue and the amount of people that they have to have on um, for the for the income that's coming in. I mean, they're a business at the end of the day and it, it's just not a good business model. So while I think the governments, the state government especially, would love to have people spread out, it just simply doesn't work for an entity like the MCG uh, and the MCC and, that, and that's why they're doing it. So uh, look, you know, I don't know why there's a cap if that's what they're going to do, but that's the reality from an, in terms of a business standpoint. Uh, plenty to get into, as I said off the top. Uh, we're going to we're going to kick off with Tasmania because there were two games down at the Apple Isle over the weekend, and at Launceston at least the support was fantastic. Uh, a lot of Bombers fans, um, a lot of raucous Bomber fans there for their game against the Hawks. Um, Premier Peter Goodwin is ramping up pressure on the AFL to uh, make sure a Tasmanian team is involved soon, but some like well, Suns chairman Tony Cochran, a uh, good man that he is, thinks that the AFL cannot sustain a 19th team given the loss-making clubs that are already in the competition his club involved. So we thought we'd do a little exercise. Jake and Christian, you're going to take on Rowan and I. Uh, we're going to go head-to-head in a bit of a debate about 
whether a Tasmanian team should come in as soon as 2024. Uh, so give us your best for and against, Rowan and I. We're for, and Jake and Christian, you're against. Rowan, kick us off if you've got uh, a big reason why Tasmania should have a team as soon as 2024. Oh, well, it's a philosophical reason that they are a heritage football area. And mm. I think, to be honest, given their time again, I think the AFL would make a different decision than they did with GWS and Gold Coast. I mean, that was all about, uh, I reckon, primarily broadcasting uh, rights money based on uh, audiences, TV audiences. But I think having the sort of infrastructure around a club, not just within the club to sustain it, the culture, if you like, is the most important thing. And, And Sunday in Launceston proved to me that there is a huge passionate football culture in Tasmania and they would flock around their own team. And unfortunately, I know it's become a bit of a cliche, but we have seen that many sporting enterprises fail on the Gold Coast. There has to be a fundamental reason that is. And I think, unfortunately, it's that that area is just, it has too many other attractions. It has Very people well. who go up there for a sedate lifestyle and whatever. They're just not as passionate about the game. And I think that makes life harder for any sporting outfit, particularly the Suns. Jake, yeah. if you had to say a, a, a reason for against going somewhere well, like Tasmania, what, what well, would just you... on what Rowan said, I agree with him. I, you know, I 100% agree. This I isn't think, going as planned. I, I think the next team the AFL introduces will be Tasmania. Will it be before 2024? I don't think it can be. And and for the reason Rowan said, and looking at the opposite side of it, is that the AFL made the decision to go into Western Sydney and Gold Coast. You can't now bring in a third team. We're still trying to prop up these clubs. You know, we'll, we'll talk about Gold Coast late, later. But the Suns are really struggling. They've been around a decade now, and there's no real improvement, not just on field, but the off-field stuff as well. As Tony Cochran said, they're still trying to prop this club up. So I don't see how a, a 19th team, a new, another a third team in, in 10 years comes in and 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 is going to be a success story straight away. It's going to take time. And I think the AFL has got to get the other two sorted first before we start worrying about another team. Yep. Fair enough. Christian, do you have any thoughts about why a Tasmanian team is not the, the way to go forward in the near future? Again, it's uh, yeah. Um, mine probably. Yeah. The, the heart is for a Tasmanian team. And mm-hmm. again, goes back to roll. I think we're almost all in agreement. They should have been the team back in 2014, 15, when we expanded the competition. They should have got one of the two licenses at least that came in then, but it, it just can't happen before 2024. I don't think we're ready for a 19th team. Um, you know, I, I'm big on, I don't want to see a team move. Um, so, you know, I don't, I, I don't think that's part of this debate here anyway, but it's just my my head just says we can't sustain a, a number another team anywhere a 19th team anywhere before 2024. But again, go back to the you know the four point for Tassie and it is it's heartbreaking to see because they were a pretty strong you know we we played Victorian State of Origin games against Tassie uh, when I was a kid and things like that and even looking at the numbers I think since 2010 so in the last 12 years we've seen three or four players from Tasmania reach 100 games. Um, you know, and about 25 or so being drafted um, that could have reached it. So again, we're just, we're not even seeing, we're not producing talent from that state anymore. So something dire, you know, is happening down there and we need to address it, but just chucking a team in there within two years is just not going to happen or not sustainable from, you know, from my thoughts. 
Right. I, I think Sunday's game to me illustrated the biggest issue that a, t- a Tasmanian team would have, and that's that they're already rusted on fans uh, for other clubs down there. I mean, it's been so long that this 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 island and these two cities, Launceston and Hobart, have not had their own AFL side. That you saw there were thousands of Bomber fans down there, and I know yeah, but that. The, but the, sorry to cut you off, but when's the last time Essen played in Tasmania? Well, yeah, it's a good point, but it's let's like just say there Liverpool are fans down there. In, it's like when Liverpool came and played in Melbourne, there was 95,000 people. If they were playing in, in at the MCG every week, would you be getting 95,000 there every week? No, you wouldn't. I, and I'm not saying that the Essendon fans wouldn't go, but I, I think it's the novelty of seeing your team play once in... But they have you know? a team. You just, hit, you just hit the nail on the head. They have, they've got teams. I mean, Carlton went down for the first time a few years back, and, and that game was a sellout. They've played a couple of times since, and they haven't sold it out. But, yeah, but right. what about the there teams are that fans down there? Play there? No, they're not going. They're not well, going to watch North and, and Hawthorne. Hang on. Can I, can I just chip in? I know I'm on your side, Matt, but I'm going to rebut you here. <laughs> <laughs> this is a weird debate. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I would just point out that, look, I've got... Western Australian heritage. My parents are both from there. I've got rallies over there. Before West, and you guys weren't even born when West Coast came in. Where West Coast came into the competition, it was a similar scenario. Everyone in Perth had a Victorian team they followed, but they still automatically went to West Coast. It doesn't, you know, they they have a, a team they still have sympathies for, but I don't doubt for a moment that Tasmanian people would flock to their own team ahead of the team from the AFL they'd adopted. I, I really think what Sunday said to me was there is a big, strong heartbeat in the football supporting um, environment of Tasmania and it beats stronger for a club that people have followed all their lives rather than a club that was parachuted in and they're supposed to now throw their weight behind. That's Hawthorne. It really was a, a vote of of lack of confidence, I think, in Hawthorne. It says more to me about mm. they want a team they've spent their whole lives supporting or their own team. So, mm. look, you, I'm, I'm not saying that's definitively the case, but I really think strongly that WA in Perth was really no different. And a lot of people were strong supporters of Victorian clubs, but as soon as their own team came in, that's where their allegiances went. Fascinating. Uh, any closing thoughts from uh, anyone else? Otherwise, we'll move. The on. only other thing I would say, in as a reason why we shouldn't have Tasmania come in, is or any any nineteen team for that matter. We're swapping sides all over the place. It, here. It, <laughs> well, no, hang on. I'm, I was on. I was the against. <laughs> yeah, it, sorry. Apologies. Is the fact that um, do we want an odd number of teams? Do we want a buy a team having a buy every week? I hate that. No, we don't, Jake. And this is why I'm going to throw another spanner in the works here. I reckon you bring in Tasmania with Northern Territory. But but then that's two more loss making entities. Yeah, that's that feels more. a while away before North, the Northern Territory. And it is. I, I I think the 2024 time frame is wildly optimistic. But I, okay. I think I think if and when it happens, it happens at the same time as the NT. And I, we, would, I would suggest in that case that whoever's running the Tasmanian bid and, and wants to do that needs to buddy up with someone in the Northern Territory and say, we need to help each other because the sooner we help each other get to an AFL standard of training grounds, playing grounds, uh, stands for grandstands and all that, the quicker that a bid, a joint bid for two more teams would be successful. I think. And that, I don't think well, they should be in competition with each other. They should work together. Yeah, I think that'll absolutely happen. See, this is the thing. Northern Territory is actually working on a campaign you haven't heard much about it because all the focus is on Tassie, but they're they're not sitting there twiddling their thumbs. They're, no, they're on not. the case as well. So 
I think you, I think you're spot on, and I think that will happen. Yeah, just uh, probably not as soon as people in Tasmania and perhaps the Northern Territory would like. Uh, we mentioned them a little bit in that last little segment, but Gold Coast, they're, we're going to have to talk about them for a little bit. Jake, I know that you've been uh, quite vocal on the Suns and also not wanting to talk about the Suns as much, but their track record in second halves of the year, well, it started to continue this trend um, and they've got some issues. And, and as we mentioned, it's not just on the field, it's off the field. The lack of success they've had as a club, the lack of being able to retain players, uh, the fact that they're consistently the youngest or the second youngest or the third youngest side trotted out every week. A multitude of problems that, that the, the Suns are facing uh, playing in the AFL at the moment. And so I thought we'd look at what you guys think the biggest issue is facing that club and, and how you'd fix it. Because at the moment, it, it seems like they're a car stuck in the mud and the wheels are just spinning at the same spot um, to come up with, with a... A, a better definition but but jake what do you think the biggest issue is facing that that club oh, there's there's a lot it's hard to pick just one but i'm going to go with and it might be a bit of recency bias over the last two games but <laughs> the lack of pressure that this that the suns are putting on where and that and that obviously stems from you know the the, the talent the, the coaching and all sorts of things but the visual that you get watching Gold Coast play and the lack of pressure that they're putting on their opposition, and again, particularly in the last two weeks, has been pathetic. Um, really, really bad. And you take you take someone like Took Miller out of the team who's been phenomenal this year, and there's just nothing, nothing happened. No one's ta- no one's putting any pressure on Green, you know, sorry, Green Hugh Greenwood and Took Miller. You take those two out, no one's tackling, no one's putting any pressure on. It's too easy for the opposition to, to chip the ball down the ground and score. And that's been my big frustration with Gold Coast because that is an effort-based thing. And you that's fix, a, and you look that at coaching? Skill, look at the talent-based thing. And you look at the stats for that. So pre-clearance pressure, so pressure around the stoppages, it's easy to apply. It's always higher. Some teams, you know, have more focus on trying to put the pressure on and limiting the clearance. Some teams have more focus on winning the clearance. But Gold Coast, the second highest pressure applied at stoppages. And that, again, Miller, Greenwood, great around there. Away from stoppages, so general play, which we've spoken about a million times, you know, 75, 80% of the games played in general play away from stoppages, they're fourth last for applying pressure. Mm. So it is more noticeable when you're not applying pressure in general play. That's, you know, the hard chasing and getting to the contest and continuing to follow up. So, again, yeah, and, and a lot of their numbers are at the coalface, they're all good. They're, they're performing well in clearances. They've got Miller, Greenwood, Matt Rao, you know, when he's inside. Uh, even Noah Anderson's a good complimentary player for that. But it is, it's it's a lot of the external stuff outside of the the grunt work where it's just, yeah, maintaining possession. They're, they're sort of high, number one for uncontested marks, but I think across the season, they're fifth last or sixth last for inside 50. So just not Gold Coast forward. is number one in the league for contested marks, did you say? Uncontested marks. Oh, so they've, to, yeah, they, they, they've found a way to keep the ball in their hands, which is, again, was always a big problem with them three or four years ago. They were always 18th and disposed and just couldn't get the ball. So to me, they're a long way off. And you, you, you touched on their second half record. So I sort of, you know, looked at the numbers from uh, 2016. Rounds 1 to 11, they're 21 and 42. So not setting the world on fire, but, you know, a few good starts. 7 and 47 post, you know, round 11. And they've still got, you know, nine more games uh, to go to add to that record. So, yeah, it, it just, that goes with inexperience. It goes with, you know, the injuries they've caught. But it's just, yeah, sustaining... A, a level, you know, a, a level of requirement, you know, just to be competitive is just it hasn't been at the club for their whole existence sort of thing. I think there was one year they were close to making finals at about round 16, mm. 17. And Gary Ablett went down. 
Um, that's the latest in the season that they're sort of being relevant to the finals discussion. And it's just, yeah, it's been it's been dire for them in the second half of the year. That that was a real line in the sand moment for them. That that game against Collingwood where Ablett did his shoulder and they got over the line, but they went to pieces after that because I always thought had he not been injured, they may well have played finals. And had they played finals, that could have been a real kickstart for them. Yep. I think, unfortunately, you know, the fate conspired against them. They missed the chance. That generation sort of fell apart. They're now back to square one. Look, my my thought on this is it's, it's a bit intangible and it's a bit of a flow on from the discussion we had before. But I, I honestly think, that there isn't, it's not a strong club. It's not a strong football environment. And there isn't enough pressure around the players to perform. So the the kids, you know, look, the senior players have brought in this latest crop, they've been great. They set the right example. But I think the young guys coming through, it's not even when they're within the four walls, as they say, of the club. It's outside that. It, it's a holiday centre. It has that relaxed feel about it. And I think if a guy like, say, um, take, say, Ben King, if Ben King has three shockers in a row and doesn't get a touch and he's playing for Collingwood, he feels that keenly. There's a real sting about it. I don't think that happens up there. And it's mm. not even the club's fault. It's that the nature of that environment means that there's just not that same buzz and and, and intensity of, of emotion around the football club. And I really do honestly believe that that comes home to roost in the performances of a lot of these guys. They don't feel that sting that accompanies having your pride pricked when you play in a, a big football environment and you're not playing well. I look at a club that's an hour down the road uh, and where the Brisbane Lions were maybe six or seven years ago and they had the go-home five and these were highly talented, highly high draft picks that, that left the club after their initial two years. And there was discussion after this about extending rookie contracts and, and all this sort of stuff. And to me, it's, it sounds like the Gold Coast Suns have had ish, similar issues in that players have left after their first or second contract and some, some really good names. The, the list of names is, is shocking, really. They'd be a, a, a finals team and consistently a finals team if those players had stayed. And it's coming to that point again. Those five players were still in the in the lineup. They'd, they'd have won the last two flags. The Lions? <laughs> yeah. Yes, but they but they, what they did, that was a line in the sand moment for them, speaking of line yeah. in the sand. And and the Suns are at a similar point now, I think, when because you're going to have Isaac Rankin, you're going to have pressure coming for, for Anderson, for Rao, for King, for Lukosius, for all of these talented youngsters that the kid that the, the Suns got in with priority picks and with with help from the AFL, and if they leave again, it sets the club back another decade. So this is their real point to say: we need to re- retain these players. They need to attract some older players. They need to bump the list age up, the average list, the average age of the list up. They need to have but, but in order to bump them. the sorry, but in order to bump the at the average age of the list up, you're yeah. going to have to give up some of that younger talent to get the older guys in uh, potentially. But there's also free agency. Uh, there are other ways to do it now. But then and, it's the, and then it's the old debate of who wants to go to the Gold Coast. Well, it was the debate of who wants to go to the basket case lines. And now look at the players that they've attracted in recent years. You know, Joe Danaher, Lockie Neal. One player comes and others go, oh, hang yeah. on, here we go. There's a way to do it. So this is their line in the sand year, I think, the Suns, to be able to say, hey, we are dead set serious about being a football entity. And I know, Rowan, that you've been big on the sort of the vortex or the, the Bermuda Triangle of, foot, of sport. Uh, but this is their line in the sand moment to try and reverse that. 
And with the players that Brisbane brought in, it's not necessarily always the big name players. They'll they'll come eventually. Lockie Neal chose that, you know, the, the way that sort of story played out, no one knew he was going to Brisbane for three months. He sort of said he was leaving Freo, looked around for a club and he fell in love with Brisbane. Um, and they got, you know, Joe Danaher recently, but it's Cam Alice Yolman that they went out and got because they, they were terribly contested possessions for 10 years in a row. Jared Lyons, uh, Marcus Adams to just to shore up the Lincoln defense. McCarthy, Mitch Robinson. Lincoln McCarthy is a massive one that's just, you know, massively underrated. Those are the players you've got to get at Gold Coast. You don't necessarily need to go get another star free agent. You've got the stars there that you need to retain. You need to go get hungry players from other clubs yep. that are on the periphery of 22. You know they can play footy. They're it's gonna doable. Come to Coast. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a major issue though, Christian. You just they need to go out and get players like Jared Lyons. Oh, look, <laughs> exactly they had him. I mean, that that is looking yeah. more and more like one of the biggest. There's got to be more wonders to in terms of the list. We've I mean, spoken about this a couple of times, but it's got to be. He's just about the best player to to just be allowed to walk. The autobiography will be a really good read, I think, because I think there's more to it than what people suggest, but. Uh, I am speculating a little bit. We should move on, though. Uh, the Gold Coast Suns are a problem, uh, and hopefully they can they can fix it because, you know, what a strong competition is good for every other team and not just them and not just for their fans. No, uh, it's true. And Sorry, and I think a lot of people were disappointed this year because I think it was the first year in quite a while that we had a bit of an expectation that Gold Coast would could potentially be you know, in the, in the mix for finals at this point. No, mm. there's a line through them right now. Mm. It's been horrible. So, yeah, disappointing. Yeah, well, fingers crossed for them going forward. Uh, we mentioned this off the top, but avenues to goal, um, score involvement, score score assists, goal assists, all this sort of other mumbo-jumbo that's kind of hard to get your head around unless you're really paying attention. Uh, Christian, something ticked us off, and it was what you mentioned off the top and what Jake had mentioned to you earlier in the week, and that Jared Lyons had 36 touches and somehow had no score involvements, which to me just sounds ridiculous because if you've got any, if you're having that many touches, surely you're involved in a scoring chain. Um, so please, I guess the lay of the land, what is a scoring chain and how do you get a goal assist and, and how do you get a score assist and like break it down for us, all these sort of different definitions if you can. Yeah. So score involvement is probably, it's one of my, yeah, it's probably up there with one of my favorite stats to look at each year. It's just a sort of a good sort of summary of exactly that scoring chains in football. You, you, you want to put the scores on the scoreboard um, and every score has a chain leading to it. So that's a chain of possessions uh, within one team. So, um, you know, Nat Nui hits it straight out to Luke Shuey in the ruck and Luke Shuey gets clean possession, and you know, 10 handballs and a few kicks and Josh Kennedy gets the goal. Every West Coast player that touched the ball in that chain, from, including Nick Nat Nui's hit out, will get a score involvement. Um, again, we use unique score involvement. So anyone that got two touches in that chain will still just get one score involvement um, because, yeah, they, they might have had two, you know, two disposals, but only one score involvement. So before all you punters out there start uh, berating us for yeah. saying that people had missed score involvements, that's why. Correct, yeah. and, and so what if the last the number of non-unique if you want. So, but yeah, we, we the, the number that we always use and publish is unique score involvement. So they should, yeah, they, you can never have more score involvements than scoring chains theoretically. Yeah, but you can't have two score involvements in the same chain. Correct, in the number yeah. that yeah, in the number yeah. that's published. If, if the last kick going inside fifty of a chain, um, the defender gives a free kick away. Is all the chain still? Yep, yep. So no, as it's it, the other, the, it, either a stoppage has to occur, so out of bounds or a ball up's called, or the opposition takes possession of the ball. Um, and that is again, we've spoken about a possession way back in year one of the pot. It's having ample, you know, picking up the ball and having ample time to dispose of it. So that's not just every time you have the ball in your hands, it's every time you have the ball in your hands with a chance to handball it or kick it. So, again, if 
defender, uh, you know, takes a mark or, you know, picks up a hub or get and runs three or four steps and gets dispossessed and then, you know, the other team picks up and kicks a goal, that's that's a new chain that just started even though the other team hasn't had a disposal. They've mm. clearly had a possession and lost it. So so what if a, what if you're kicking forward uh, and someone comes in and spoils from behind and the ball hits the ground and it's sort of congested and eventually one of your teammates picks it up? Does that still count as the same scoring chain even yep, though? It's still the same chain. Yep. So it's all still one chain. And um, again, that's how, you know, a lot of clubs will look at it and they might break it down to how many times there was a, another contest came up within the chain, but it still just counts as one chain. Um, as long as, yeah, as I said, there's the only so two stats that kill pretty, it. It's pretty generous with these chains. So it's, it's quite unbelievable that Jared Lyons could have 36 touches. The most Correct. There's, a, there's a little bit of, yeah, you're right. I mean, whether it's generous or, or more randomness of yeah, yeah the chain. If you're an yeah. inside player like Jared Lyons and you're firing out handballs to Dane Zorko, um, you know, it wasn't there. You know, the players, others that were turning it over. That's not that's not your fault. But again, it is. It's such a high number, and that's why it's one of my favourite stats. There's a little bit of luck and um, randomness in it. But again, when you collate it all and look over it across time, and you know, look over it across season, it does sort of point to some, um, you know, the players that do have impact from the scoreboard and not, but. Just looking at these two games on the weekend that we mentioned, so Jared Lyons, 36 disposals, zero score involvements, and Took Miller, 30 touches and uh, zero score involvements. So the stat goes back to 2003. There's only been 11 games in that time where someone's had at least 30 disposals and zero score involvements. And two of them were this weekend. Two of them were this weekend. So yeah, it was I would have thought that maybe both noticed it, but it was there was a reason to it because it is so rare. So... But uh, Jared Lyons wasn't actually the most. There's actually been one 40 disposal game with zero score involvement. Oh, no. So it was no, hang on, hang on. Hang on. Uh, hold on, hold on. Oh, I missed that. Go on. Were you going to have a guess, Jake? Well, so, I was. What year was it? A current player? No, 2010. Gary Ablett? No. That's good. Who's Pretty it? rare for a guy in this position to have 41 disposals, but I do, I do remember the game. Brian Lake. Um, oh. a game where he took about, I reckon he had about 18, 19 marks. Of, a lot of them were backwards kicks and they were just... Joel sort Bowden of, sort of sort yeah, of. Yeah, I was thinking of Joel Bowden. <laughs> playing a very anchor role. So again, that was just... And when I ran the, the query, um, said, no, nah, that's that's got to be an error of 41 and zero, sort of 2010, you know, um, further back than most years. But yeah, looked into it. Every other player had a score involvement in that game. Everything else matches up. The chains all, you know, all add up. So that was a legitimate 41-touch game without any involvement on the scoreboard. Rowan, you've got your hand two, up. Oh, well, two questions, Christian. One, what is the average number of possessions in a scoring chain? Uh, oh, I haven't looked at that for a couple of years. We looked at that um, in a – well, we looked at just in an average chain. I think it's about two or three Um Okay. What you call mm. possessions, if you include it, that's that's every chain though. Yeah, uh, so I coast to coast, you'd be looking at yeah. five. Chains, obviously, are more. You know, you've got you could have fifty-one disposal chains across a game where a guy gets the ball, hacks it forward, the other team gets it, kicks it, and it goes out of bounds. That's two chains right there, but one disposal per team, sort of thing. So, mm. um, yeah, scoring chains are probably they can vary, but I mean, off the top of my head, I think a scoring chain would probably be up to four or five. Um, disposals or you know possessions which if you include you know a knock-on or a hit out to advantage um also being counted in a my last question was you you really uh pricked my ears up talking about your favorite stat when are we going to get your top five favorite stats sure Ooh, like it next week i don't know if i even have one but uh, yeah I, again, I reckon you've had a few over the years yeah, there's, there's a few that i like to look at but yeah the, 
these again and score assists which we'll talk about shortly is another one that I like to just a, a little quirky what I like to look at but so with score involvements again just wanted to look at obviously the you know who's had the most in score score involvements this year and that's been Toby Green at GWS with nine scoring chains per game he's been involved in Taylor Walker at that, that's an average right nine yeah, per yeah, game nine yeah. uh, Taylor Walker's just behind him at 8.8 and Jeremy Cameron 8.3 but you can extend that and actually look at um percentage of scores that you've been involved in. So again, Toby Green comes up for number one for that. So he's been involved in 40% of the Giants scoring chains. Wow. So that's, that's these, there's a bit of a theme merging and it's, it's forwards, but forwards that seem to sort of push up a little bit further than your, your deep forward. And it's those that are probably, I guess, at the start of a chain when there's a forward half turnover perhaps, and then they're getting it forward instead of backmen where they probably are involved in a lot of scoring, but maybe in separate chains if there's a turnover at some point. Correct. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're more likely yeah. to have their chain, yeah, yeah, broken down. Um, but yeah, again, even by one possession or one disposal chain, which I've always, you know, and I'm sure we could run. I've always wanted to run a query where we just disregard all one possession chain, so it, we, you know, end up with more successful chains. You sort of take out the ones where okay, the opposition got it and handballed it, but they handballed it straight back to us. I want to yeah. still count it as one chain. Um, again, I'm sure clubs would no link. There. Doesn't say the link for it to be a chain. Correct. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, what about the difference between score involvements and score assists, and yeah, specifically so, goal assists? Like, how many possessions can be involved in a, an assist, for instance? Yeah. So if the score involvement is everything in the chain leading up to it, as I said, including hitouts and knock-ons. Um, if you get a free kick four and the other guy takes an advantage, so you never actually, you know, you get belt in the back of the head and the ball goes over your head and teammate picks it up and kicks a goal, you still get an involvement in that chain. Uh, a score assist is your direct um, disposal or act, because it could be a knock-on or hit-out, that leads to the guy that, to, that gets the possession for the scorer. So a kick to Jack Rewald on the lead and he goes back and kicks the goal. The guy that kicked it to him will get the score assist. Everyone else involved in that chain before it for Richmond will get a score involvement. Do you so, get both a goal assist and a score involvement? Yes, yes. Yeah. They, yeah. Every uh, every goal is a score involvement. Every every score is a score involvement. And every score assist is a score involvement as well. So uh, they do count together. And again, um, when you look at you know our two measures for um, player points is ratings and ranking points. Both measures value a goal and a behind assist the same way in terms of it doesn't an assist is an assist it, it's not up to the player or there's no less value to a player if you give a behind assist versus a goal assist because it's not up to you how accurate your teammate is kicking for that goal so ratings takes into account where you gave him the ball anyway so you, if you gave it to him in an easy spot you get a high value for that assist whether it was a goal or a behind but again the quirky way i like to look at it is, is you've got accurate assist players somehow and inaccurate assist players and again it's it's, it's all luck and it's all randomness um, but yeah, some like we'll just touch on the leaders of score assist this year. So Zach Merritt, twenty-four score assist, is leading. Twelve goals. He's a bloody, he's a bloody good player, Zach Merritt. The <laughs> <laughs> so twelve and twelve, he's got a good, you know, fifty percent accuracy if you want from his assists. Uh, Jack McRae, be four assists. He's sixteen goals and eight behinds, so fairly accurate. Uh, Lockie Hunter, uh, twenty-three score assists, fourteen and nine, and Bonson Pally, twenty-three score assists, sixteen and seven. So. Three Bulldogs players in the top four. So, obviously, more scores lead to more assists, more score assists. But took a step back and just, yeah, wanted to look at guys that have freakishly accurate assist numbers. So, um, there's one player in the competition that's had at least 10 goal assists and zero behind assists this year. Um, And I think he's been one of the best, I don't know what he was, free agents or traded pickup 
Okay. Uh, I'm going to say Tim Kelly because West Coast are quite accurate. No. I don't even know if it's an accurate team, but no, Nick Hind. I'm going to say he's probably giving it to McDonald, Tip and Woody every time. Well, maybe, but he's also most of his score assists are coming from the back half or further up the ground. So it's not those dinky ones over the top to a guy in the goal square where, Mm. you know, he's probably, yeah, a little bit of luck involved in that. Luck is involved, isn't it? Yeah. Um, So the next best. Is he assisting himself for that goal he kicked? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, you can't have your own score. Sorry, assist. I'm being stupid, but it was a good goal. I'm wondering if the guy, if yeah, I'd have to go back and check if the guy that gave it to him would get an assist. Or yeah, right. Well, he should, shouldn't he? Yeah, well, if you've had two disposals, though, I would have to check the... Uh, mm. the You'd have an involvement, if for you sure. you handball to yourself and then pick it up again, does that screw the... <laughs> but if I handball yeah. to Nick Hind in the defensive goal square and he takes 10 bounces and kicks the goal, do I still get a, a goal? No, so there's a few times where it's subjective. The computer, so a contested mark, it'll ask, do does the caller want to score assist? And the subjective there is, was that the clear intention of the kick? So if I've kicked it to a pack, Josh Kennedy takes it five deep, I don't get a score assist. But I kick it to Josh Kennedy one on three and he takes that mark, we'll give a score assist because we'll say, well, it wasn't a great decision, but Luke Shuey clearly tried to get it to Kennedy and he got it. So the 10 bounce one, no. It's when whenever you have a running bounce or get the ball um, further out from goal, it will ask you. If you run a straight line, don't have to balk and you want to kick a goal, you will get an assist. But when it starts to be like, oh, no, he had to change direction. He had to sort of, you know, Interesting. Sort of hard running. You won't get an assist. So there is a little bit of subjectiveness in it. But, um, yeah, not not too often. Hey, just quickly on Nick Hind, uh, I think at three-quarter time that game on Sunday, there'd been – Hawthorne had had one running bounce and Essen had had ten. And I think Hind yeah, had had eight of them. Nine of them or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's one of the stats that's definitely, uh, yeah, died from, you know, we were recording them – since 99 running bounces. And I think the most in the game is um, Nathan Bock or at 23. Nathan Bock had a ridiculous game of 23 running bounces without sprinting. I think he was sort of <laughs> wasn't like, Nathan Bock famous for getting the ball and bouncing it straight away before it yeah, even moved. It was, yeah. Just little side <laughs> to the side. But again, I think, I don't think we've seen a team hit 20 running bounces. All season. See Hines doing now. There was a game early in the season where Hines got pinged for running too far. And since then he's bouncing at every two steps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I reckon you're fast enough to do it. 40 meters and bounce it five times. <laughs> um, anything else? Uh, anything else from uh, from this sort of uh, chat before yeah. we move on? Just quickly look the other way. So inaccurate score assist player. So uh, Mason Wood, and again a symptomatic of the team he's playing for, St Kilda, but zero zero goal assist, six behind assist. So he's getting them, giving them chances, but they're not finishing it off for him. And Mitch Hannon is the other one with sort of zero goals and four uh, behind assists, but. Went back over time and looked at from 2010 onwards. Hamish Hartlett's the one that comes up for me. So he's had 110 score assists, 46 goals and 64 behind assists, which gives him an assist accuracy of 42%. So he's the one that's sort of, you know, he can't can't do any more. He's getting him to the best spot possible, but he's probably got the worst uh, assist accuracy over the last 12 years. uh, He was kicking him to John Butcher. Yeah, I was trying to think of the names that we would blame for it. I think, yeah, you know, Lindsay Thomas was there for a while, but I think he's most of his inaccurate days were at North Melbourne. Yeah. He was uh, yeah, Westoff, Westoff was always hit and miss. So yeah. but, yeah, Dixon's never really been consistent. So perhaps there's a bit of that as well. He's got Robbie Gray there, though. He's just yeah, aimed for Robbie Gray more, maybe. 
Very good. Uh, very good. That's explained a lot. So hopefully that's helped someone at home try and break it down a little bit. Um, we've mentioned the Cats game a bit, especially during our Something We Noticed segment, but Gary Rowan's winner, we can't sort of go a podcast without mentioning it and uh, the sort of the, the beautiful right to left it had, um, the intrigue. Be honest, uh, about a third of the way through that trip, I thought it was going out on the full. <laughs> I thought it was going out on the full. And you know what? It got us thinking, who would you have if you had to pick anyone current player in the AFL, guys, who would you have to have that shot? Oh, well, I guess Any Gary player you could pick. just slotted it. So hey. how could you go against... Well, I'm, I'm with Jake. I'm a numbers man. So we worked it out before. I think we, we came across there was 10 players, 10 current players that have done it. Um, but it's happened 11 times because Gary Rowan's the only one that's done it twice. Oh, twice. So Having numbers, said so, that, oh, the other one was right did in front of the goal square. <laughs> yeah. uh, Rowan, do you have uh, anyone other than Gary Rowan? Well, the, I, I would go for Rowan. Um, yeah. The only one I'd sort of immediately came to mind was probably Anthony McDonald, Tipper Moody. Yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd throw Jack Rewald up there. I'm pretty – Jack Rewald, again, he's, he's one that keeps every kick simple, whether it's yeah. the win by 100 points or it's the yeah. first kick of the game or the last kick of the game. He he seems to be so calm with his technique. Yeah, I think I, agree. I, I think, think a name nice. we said before was, just before was Robbie Gray. I mean, he did it last yeah. year and is a very good kick for goal. Um, what about Luke Bruce? Yeah, I, that was another name that, that popped up. Um, from where from where he was, I mean, at, at his age, from where that was, from Gary Rowan, he, yeah, he probably still made the distance all right, wouldn't he? Maybe yeah. a uh, maybe a Gary Rowan's teammate, the Tomahawk. Not a bad kick, not a bad set shot. There's a few really nice set he's shots out there. got a lot there. better too. I yeah, mean, he's got very good, yeah, very reliable. Since that GWS miss. Well, well, even the last quarter of the 211 grand final, I mean, he ends up handballing off to Steve Johnson because he doesn't want to take yeah. a shot. The next year, he kicks one from bloody 60 metres out to win against Hawthorne. Mm. And he's kicking since then. He's a he's a very reliable kicker. Maybe um, Ben Simmons can take something out of uh, the Tomahawks book and, and start shooting and gaining some confidence. Oh, well, he, here's one on the here's one on the fly, though. But if you've if you've got to you got to pick a player to go into a, a goal kicking competition, five different shots mm. all around, all inside the 50 random positions. For your life, who are you taking? I think Revolt. Yeah, I think for the reasons that Christian nominated, just his set shot routine is immaculate, and he doesn't I, overdo it. That's, that's I think I'm taking Toby Gray. Is this a goal kicking comp? That yeah, is it a hybrid one where some of them have to be on the run? Because I'll I'll flip and go to the other name we just mentioned, Luke Bruce. I can't remember. I think you brought that up first, Matt. But yeah, he the way he thinks through his snapshots, where you, you see him crumb the ball, he's running the boundary line. He knows exactly what he needs to do each time. And I just, mm. I made the comment on the weekend. He's just paid to kick goals. Like it's such, a, it's such a it's such a Mr. Reliable comment, but he is. That's his job. He's still like, underrated, Luke uh, Bruce, which is an amazing thing. Yeah. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just throw in too from a historical perspective. I wouldn't have any of these guys ahead of Tony Lockett and Darren Jarman. Well, Fair I'll enough. give you one. I'll give you an, a historical one too. Maybe not as historical as those two, but the player I always said was my favourite kick, and I would always I put my house on him kicking it was Alan Didak. It was always yeah. just a dead eye shooter. Yeah. Very frustrating one, to watch. Corey Dixon, another recently <laughs> retired. Dixon, he was, yeah. He the back end of his career, yeah, that was fair. No, uh, we, we, we keep going. I used to love watching Didak on the on the angle from the boundary. He just would kick them every time. Yeah. Um, I remember there was a game where it, it might have been, I'm not sure, it wasn't after the sign, I don't think, because we were talking about these ones before, but it might have been late in the game. 
And he had a shot from about 45 on the boundary. And I remember there was a shot went up at Mick Malthouse and he just looked so calm knowing that he was going to slot it. And he did. It was a beautiful kick for goal. Mm. Well, actually kind of bringing it back to where we started with Gary Rowan, you should have seen looking at um, Luke Beveridge's face. He knew that the ball was in the hands of the player that he did not want the ball in the hands yeah. of when that siren went. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Gary Rowan. Chris Scott was pretty restrained after the siren. <laughs> Yeah, doesn't show a lot of emotion on Scotty, does he? I could see his tongue poking out under the bottom of his mask. <laughs> how many F words, F bombs do you reckon he dropped with the mask on? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, that, that was, was a great. That was I like great. it. I like the emotion. Very good. He's um, the I... Tom Papley of coaches celebrating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll do that another one. Yeah, the best celebrators in the AFL. But let's move on. Justified hype or hyperbole. Uh, the segment where I'll say a statement. You guys tell me whether the hype is justified or we're speaking in hyperbole. Toby Green's goal, the uh, the talk from about 65. That's the best goal of the year so far. Does anyone want to argue against it? And should be goal of the year as well. Um, I'm struggling to think of a better goal. Yeah. I'm struggling to think of any other goal. <laughs> well, Mitch Duncan kicked a oh, yeah. goal yeah. from the yeah. actually I from think, the boundary. I think Duncan um, I think... was further out, wasn't he? He was oh, on I a think... worse angle. I think yeah. they were about the same, but I think Green cleared the cleared the goal line by a bit more. Like it was, yeah. oh, they were both great kicks. Um, both after a siren too, as well. Yep, true. Duncan halftime, I think. Um, um, yeah. So should a Torp win an award like that? Oh, if it's if it's a seventy plus meter Torp, why not? I I, I think. How often do we see these snaps from the boundary now? We see it almost once a game, someone snapping a goal from the boundary. How often do you see a torp from 70? Twice a year. Okay, I'm, I'm going to okay. throw – he's a cat among the pigeons. I'm going to throw in Nick Hine for goal of the year. The, the most recent yeah. effort? Yeah. It was pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, a few, few – yeah, okay. Fair enough. I mean, as, Christian, a, rule you got of, as a rule of thumb, I, I think a, a snap should always come behind a goal in general play but for the qualifier of distance and circumstances and stuff. A snap or a set shot? I I think so. Well, a snap, oh, you mean a snap from a set shot? Mm. Yeah, that's sort of thrown in another criteria, hasn't it? Yeah. I'm trying to bait Christian because in the pre-pod, he was talking about how a set shot should not be goal of the year. A set, no. Okay, so a set shot could be. (laughs) Only if it's a top. The one I said was Jack Nunes last year. Jake said he thought that should be goal of the year. And I said, no way. I I can't cop that being goal of the year. It's there's another category for it. It's most valuable goal. It's a highlight. It'll go down in history. It's a goal after the siren and all that stuff. But if that goal was kicked in the second quarter, it doesn't get nominated for goal. It's just a good kick. It's just yeah, but if, if Josh Dacos's goal was kicked by anyone that's surname isn't Dacos, it's not goal of the year. Do you think... Oh, well, that's 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 where the voting fans come yeah. out. I'm not debating that, but I think <laughs> that can be. But a normal set shot, just because it's after the siren, that shouldn't... That shouldn't yeah, get it in any more points in what the goal of the year is. The goal of the year should be something that you can watch over and over and just go, wow, how did he do that? The Jack Nunes one... As I said, you need to know. Oh, the it was raining. It was, you know, you know, keep the season alive. It was not goal. Yeah, I, I couldn't put those up for goal year. But the Toby Green one, I'd be happy for talks from 70. That was that was awesome to watch. I said it on the night. He's just kicked a goal against my team, but I love it. I yeah. love that goal. <laughs> that was an awesome goal to watch. Is, Rowan, the snap, is the snap from a set shot a set shot or in general play? It's Would a it depend shot on whether the umpire calls play on? No, nah, well, we'll, if it's the one-step one, they're still counted as set shots. Interesting. So. Uh, next question. We've got to move on. We're running short of time, guys. Um, we can get distracted by this sort of stuff all day. Uh, which one are we going to pick? Uh, Rowan, Jake Stringer is a top 10 player in the AFL. 
Justified oh, or hyperbole? No, that's hyperbole. Look, it was a, a fantastic game, but... Was it his I, best game? Yeah. Oh, yeah, one? easy. Yeah. I think he said that, actually. He did, yeah. Um, one of his, yeah. But, yeah, look, if he could produce, you know, at least 50% of his performances like that, I'd say yes. But the fact is, he doesn't. You know, consistency's been an issue for him, so I wouldn't put him in the top 10. If you're talking ability, I think I would. Jay, any thoughts? I think he's the closest player in the league to to Dusty in terms of how he plays. It's a massive call. Sorry, not 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 second. I'm not saying he's the second best player. I just think I think the way they play, I think he's as close to Dusty as a player than any other player. The way he can start in the midfield, win the ball, push forward, is freakish around goals. Strong but fast, can push mm. off players, can tackle. I think he's a has the potential to be very similar to to what Dustin Martin is. Um, and as Rowan said, he's just got a he's had some injuries that have sort of slowed him down a bit. But when he's going, and even in the times where the bombers were weren't going that great, he's been the one that's really been quite consistent. Probably just needs to get a little bit more of the ball, I think. Well I've got you. Um there's a Ben Simmons of the AFL out there somewhere. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there is. Um yeah, Good player afraid to is. shoot. I think there are a few the one that probably springs to mind when I think Ben Simmons in the AFL would probably be Patrick Cripps. Talented. You you want him on your team, but has a real problem shooting and has a bit of a problem with his work rate. Um, we've, we've highlighted a few times where you see you know, Carlton defending and you know, Cripps will run in in the time Cripps has run fifteen meters. Three opposition players have run past him, so I think there's a few similarities there. Mm-hmm. Nat Fife, superstar player, can't can't convert on the scoreboard. Oh, I wouldn't say Simmons is a superstar player though, and I I don't think you can question. He's, he's paid like one. Yeah, he's paid like one, but he's not. You know, mm, okay. Not Tom Boyd was paid like one, but he wasn't. Last one before we wrap things up for this episode, Rowan. The Giants will play finals this year. Uh hyperbole. Okay. No, no offence to them, but I, I think the eight will stay the same. Fair enough. Uh, all right, get your tips in. Thursday night footy's back. Uh, pretty decent matchup too, Jake. Any thoughts on Cats-Lions, the return game from that one earlier in the season? Yeah, it's going to be a cracker. Um, I think it's quite difficult to pick. Probably Geelong just, but I, I don't know, Brisbane... I don't know. I don't, I'm just I'm not sure what I'm going to get with Brisbane. They, they weren't that great against... Um, North, mm. so I'll probably take Geelong just on the form, but it should be a good game. Cats have had the wood over the lines over recent times, it's fair mm. to say. They have, yeah. Mm. I think Ron was saying 12 of the 13. 12 out of 13, the one they lost was by a point. Plus, they stitched them up in the preliminary final at the same venue. Good point, good point. Yep. All right, uh, guys, thanks for joining me. Christian, uh, thanks for that stuff on goal assist and score assist. You've actually... I know that I'm the, the host of this, but I learned something. So that's always good. Um, and <laughs> it's always good when I learn something as well. Uh, Jake, Rowan, thanks again for joining us. And to everyone at home, we will speak to you in the next one. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod, wherever you get your podcasts.